Welcome to Palm Dillion United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, February 6th, 2022. May God use this as a blessing to us today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I have to ask, are are you an always get there early kind of person? Are you a show up just on time person or a eh, I'll get there when I get there kind of person? Right? A recent study from Harvard University determined that chronic lateness can actually be beneficial. People who are late tend to be less stressed. They also are less worried about deadlines. Uh, I'm guessing they're also less employed, but that's just me. I don't that wasn't part of the, you know, research that they came up with. Uh, in Hawaii, there's such a thing as Hawaiian time. So if you get an invitation saying that the celebration will start at 4 p.m. Hawaiian time, that means you can show up anytime from like 3.30 to maybe 6, and you'll be considered on time. By the way, church does not start on Hawaiian time in Hawaii. It does start at a regular time. Uh, here at uh, Palmdale Church, we also have a preschool and after-school program, Palmdale United Methodist Educational Services. Their school day ends at 6.30 p.m. The policy for uh, not picking up your children on time is uh, $1 a minute for every minute you come after 6.30. You'll be surprised at how well that helps the school to close at 6.30 on most days. Uh, the benefits of punctuality, though, have been well documented, right? It shows your professionalism, your credibility, your commitment. It, it expresses uh, respect for others and their time. It can reduce stress and help lead to inner peace. On the other hand, uh, Toronto-based psychotherapist Raina Khan says that there are plenty of reasons why people end up being chronically late, They'll often blame laziness or lack of motivation, but in reality, uh, Khan says avoidance is often the culprit, right? He says avoidance stems from fear. Fear is a powerful emotion, and it is an emotion that is familiar to many of us. William Shakespeare once had a character say, better three hours too early than one minute too late. I guess it'll save you a dollar if you go to the preschool. Um, but what do you do when it's God who shows up late? Dr. Krish Kandaya, in his book, God is Stranger, what happens when God turns up, writes this. Maybe you are one of the many who have found the tardiness of God unforgivable because he turned up late for you. Where was God when your marriage was still salvageable? Where was God when your mental health was passing the point of no return? Where was God when you were putting all your eggs in the wrong financial basket? Stuff happens that can make us seriously question God's timing. Well, if you've ever felt any of those things, you are in for a treat as we look at the story of Gideon. Welcome to the third week in this new sermon series, this challenging sermon series entitled Stranger, Finding God in Unexpected Places. Now, this six-week series is based on Dr. Kandaya's book that I just referenced, and it involves some very strange stories from the Bible. In just about every case, God appears at an unexpected time and in an unexpected appearance. 
which can be quite unsettling for us and for our faith. But if we take the passage seriously, if we allow ourselves to wrestle with the issues and the questions raised, I truly believe we will come out of it with a stronger and more resilient faith. Our story today is from the book of Judges. Uh, it's the book of the Bible that brings us uh, the famous story of Samson and Delilah, but I think by and large, um, Judges is not a book that many of us are all that familiar with. So let me give you a little bit of the backstory leading up to it. Through Moses, God rescued the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. But because of their stubbornness and faithlessness, an entire generation of Israelites dies as wandering refugees in the wilderness, a 40-year journey. Joshua then leads God's people into the promised land, but things don't exactly go all the way they were planned. And so now, as we get into the book of Judges, the people have no clear leader after Joshua. There's no real direction on where they're going as well. So they fall into this cycle that we see repeated over and over again. The people uh, rebel against God, which God then uh, allows them to fall into the hands of uh, neighboring um, bullies, if you will. Uh, then they eventually repent, and God sends a judge, a leader, to their rescue. But they don't stay repented. They fall back into that cycle of sin again. And it goes over and over and over all throughout the book of Judges. At the, at the beginning of every chapter of his book, Dr. Kandai gives a very succinct summary of where he's heading. This is what he says about Gideon. Chapter 4, in which an internally displaced coward complains to a passing stranger, and we learn that the least likely person can change a nation or not. Now, remember this cycle of unfaithfulness that I just mentioned. As we uh, open our Bibles or your, your, your phone and Bible app to the book of Judges chapter 6, Judges chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. If you have the church app, click on the Bible link, and it'll take you right to that chapter. Judges 6, verses 1 and 2. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. The hand of Midian prevailed over Israel, and because of Midian, the Israelites provided for themselves hiding places in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. So in the book of Judges, when the people sin against the Lord, which can mean a lot of things, but, but most of the time it means that they started worshiping foreign gods. They started worshiping the gods of the neighboring communities around them. Well, whenever this happens, God allows those neighboring communities or armies to come in and rule over them. In this case, it's the Midianites, their neighbors to the south. And the Midianites were ruthless. They swept in on their camels. They destroyed livestock in order to undermine Israel's economic base. Plus, they rooted and they uh, looted and they raided all of the produce and the harvests throughout the land. They were relentless, so much so that the Israelites took to living in caves and in the mountains. They abandoned their homes and their cities. They, they became like refugees within their own land. Verse 6. Thus Israel was greatly impoverished because of Midian. And the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. 
So you can see the cycle here, right? Sin leads to oppression, and then eventually the people wake up and realize, oh, maybe God can help us. Oh, we're sorry. And they ask for forgiveness. Time for a judge to rise up. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, and his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now another story in the series about God's visit to earth and God loves hanging out by the trees. This time it's the oaks at Ophrah. The land was owned by a man named Joash and his son Gideon uh, was doing his chores uh, on this land this particular day. Now, most of us are unfamiliar with the process of threshing wheat, but uh, after a, a harvest of wheat, after the grain is harvested and dried, the seeds then have to be separated from the stems. So a bundle of wheat is uh, hit or beaten over a hard surface in order to loosen the grains. This is what a threshing floor in the ancient Near East would have looked like, a large open space where the wind could also help the separating process and blowing away the chaff. Ideally, these were up on mountains or uh, at least on hills where they could get good um, uh, wind coming in. This, however, is a wine press. It's a large hole in the ground where people would stomp on grapes so that the juice could then run into the catchment area and the bottom. Now, how effective do you think beating out wheat in a hole in the ground is going to be. Right, not very effective at all. That's where Gideon, our, quote, hero of the story, is when the angel catches up with him. Why? Because he's afraid that the Midianites will see him if he's, if he's beating wheat up on the mountaintop, and they'll come in and say, thank you so much for being wheat. We will take it from here. Verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Who ever says that God doesn't have a sense of humor, hasn't really read the scriptures very closely, right? I mean, it sounds a bit ironic, doesn't it? This timid Israelite hiding in a wine press and to do his chores in order to not be seen. But you know what? Maybe there's a bit of prophetic encouragement here as well. Maybe God isn't just being sarcastic and ironic, right? Maybe God saw more in Gideon that even Gideon saw him in, in himself in this moment. Verse 13, Gideon answered him, but sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all these wonderful deeds that our ancestors recounted us saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? Yeah, but now the Lord has cast us off and given us into the hand of Midian. All right, so Gideon's sarcastic meter is way off the charts here. And remember, we know this stranger is an angel. Gideon doesn't. God, once again, has come incognito. And Gideon is ready to give this stranger a piece of his mind. Oh, yeah. Oh, God is with us. I'll tell you, it doesn't look like God is with us at all, my friend. In fact, it's even hard to start to continue to believe those Exodus stories anymore because God hasn't done anything to help us lately. Gideon has experienced so much heartache and sorrow, he has no belief that God is indeed with them. Of course, he forgets the part that happened at the very beginning that says that the whole people fall into sin over and over again. But we will uh, we'll let that pass at this moment. Verse 14. Then the Lord turned to him and said, 
Go in this might of yours and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. I hereby commission you. He responded, but, but sir, how, how can I deliver Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Now, as we've seen in other um, encounters uh, by God uh, incognito, the, the, the narrator kind of slips back and forth between whether this stranger is an angel or actually the Lord speaking. Evidently, uh, it's one and the same. And this divine entity's sarcasm game is strong. Go in this might of yours, he says to Gideon. Obvious, Gideon has no might, no heart, no courage. He's just a cowardly lion who's not only threshing wheat in a wine press, but he is sure that he is nobody special. God could never possibly consider him. I'm the least in my family. In fact, our whole family is kind of lame. You know, I'm just being honest here, God. Uh, Nope, (laughs) it's not going to happen. But what Gideon doesn't seem to know, that this is exactly how God loves to operate, right? God routinely chooses the least likely to accomplish God's purposes. God frequently uses the lowly in ways that surprise, shock, and astound the strong. And throughout the Bible, self-doubt runs rampant among those whom God chooses. I mean, just look at Moses or Isaiah or Jeremiah, to name a few. I mean, I remember in my own life when I first felt God calling me to be a pastor. How could God possibly want me? I thought, I'm way too young. I didn't know any pastors. I was 18 at the time. I didn't know any pastors that were young. Surely this is not something that I could possibly do. You you must have dialed the wrong number, God. That's how Gideon felt. Verse 16. The Lord said to him, but I will be with you. And you shall strike down the Midianites, every one of them. When God says, I will be with you, that should be the end of every discussion, right? I will be with you. Could there be anything more comforting and reassuring in all of Scripture? I will be with you. I mean, at Christmas time, we talk about Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God is with us. You see, God hasn't chosen Gideon because he's mighty. God has chosen Gideon because God is mighty. Now, I need to pause for a moment here because this may be the one point that some of us need to hear most today. When God calls us to some challenging task to work on healing a a difficult relationship that has been broken over the years or to trust God along this pathway where we can't even see where it's going to end up, God isn't asking us because he thinks we've got every single quality and characteristic that we might need in order to overcome this. No, God calls us because God knows he will be with us. God's mightiness is more than enough to see us through whatever pathway we may be on. But even people of faith, like Gideon, may need a few reassurances. So Gideon asks the stranger, stay a while, Uh, offers some of that great um, uh, ancient Near Eastern hospitality that we talked about last week. Um, And and if you don't mind, says Gideon, can you just give me a little sign that I know it's really you? I, I mean, I know you say you're the Lord, but, you know, it could be anyone. So if you could just give me a sign, that would be great. So he goes and prepares a a light snack, some tasty vittles uh, for this guest. He is instructed then to place them on uh, the meat and the bread on this rock, and at which point the stranger takes his staff and he touches the rock. It immediately turns into a flaming barbecue, and at that moment, the angel disappears. 
So, big enough sign for you there, Gideon? Like, will that do it? You asked. God delivered. Later that night, God gives Gideon his first assignment, and it has nothing to do with the Midianites. In fact, it's a more, shall we say, domestic affair. It turns out that the worship of the neighboring god Baal had infiltrated so much of the Israelites' community that even Gideon's own father had a personal shrine built to the god Baal. So God says, okay, your first job is to go and to uh, trash your dad's uh, altar and then set up an altar to me and take your dad's prized ox and uh, sacrifice it on the altar. That, that should be good for starters. Now, knowing what we know about Gideon, how confident do you think he is in carrying out this task? Right. Not very, right? So instead of doing it at day, when everybody can see, and it could be this bold, prophetic statement, no, he decides to do it at night when nobody knows what happened. So the following morning, the townspeople wake up. They notice their beloved shrine to, to Baal has been destroyed. They want revenge. Uh, they hear through the grapevine somehow that Gideon was responsible, and they decide to have Gideon put to death. But then his father hears about it, the builder of the shrine itself, he stands up for his son and says, basically, if Baal is upset with him, let Baal hold him accountable. And that pretty much was the end of that. Verse 33. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together. And crossing the Jordan, they encamped in the valley of Jezreel. For the spirit of the Lord took possession of Gideon. And he sounded the trumpet, and the Abyssalites were called out to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, and they too were called to follow him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went down to meet them. So two of the foreign powers, the bullies in the area, the Midianites and the Amalekites, plus some of the surrounding villages in the east, they all muster troops. They cross into the Jordan uh, where they are standing to uh, start a battle against Gideon and his clan. Now, these scared, internally displaced refugees who are hiding out in the mountains and in the caves, they are facing a major international crisis. But we have verse 34 in here. But the Spirit of the Lord took possession of Gideon. So Gideon blows the trumpet to call the troops together from his own family, from his own tribe, and a couple of the surrounding 12 tribes of Israel as well. And now, now we get to see this transformed man of God boldly step into this newfound role as God's chosen liberator of the people. Yeah, that's not exactly how it works out. Uh, verse 36. Then Gideon said to God... <clears throat> In order to see whether you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you have said, I'm going to lay a, lay a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. And if there is dew on the fleece alone and the, dry is, and the ground is dry all around, then I shall know that you will deliver Israel by my hand. And it was so. I mean, think about it for a minute. This man has spoken face to face with God, or, or at least face to face with with an angel, with God's messenger. They even had a barbecue together. God's spirit has come upon him in a mighty way, and he basically says, um, no offense, Lord, but could I have another one of those signs? I mean, just one more. I, I, 
I just still feel a little uncomfortable about this whole situation that you've put me in here. So God plays along with this uh, wet little fleece on the ground science experiment. And the next morning when he wakes up and he goes outside, sure enough, the ground is dry, but Gideon's fleece is, uh, is damp. All right, there you go, Gideon. There's your sign. End of the story, right? Well, no. You know, being a good empirical scientist that he is, Gideon decides to test for the possibility of a false positive. And he says, let's run this one more time, God. Um, let's do another fleece test, but this time, let's switch it up, and let's have the ground be damp and the fleece be dry. And God does it again for him. It's interesting, isn't it, that rather than be being more bold, more confident, more filled with faith as time goes by, Gideon seems to be doing the opposite. He, he seems to be falling deeper and deeper into fear and self-doubt. As Dr. Kandaya puts it, Gideon, <laughs> he's already had more direct guidance from God than most Christians could possibly hope for. And yet he struggles with so much self-doubt, it seems no amount of evidence will convince him that God's presence and power is really with him. So maybe there's hope for us <laughs> as well, right? I mean, we often ask, God, give us a sign. <laughs> and, and when we have to make these important life decisions, and God sends all kinds of signs our way, and either, either we just miss them or we think, oh, one more sign. We, we just, we need a little bit more, God. Um, boy, and we're not always quick to move from fear to faith either, are we? Who knew the Bible characters could be so relatable to us, right? Now, what transpires next, nobody saw it coming. Judges chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, the troops with you are, are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Israel would only take credit away from me, saying, <clears throat> excuse me, my own hand has delivered me. Now, therefore, proclaim this in the hearing of the troops. Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home. Thus Gideon sifted them out. 22,000 returned and 10,000 remained. So God uh, takes a chapter right out of Military Tactics 101 <clears throat> You shouldn't ever take too many troops into battle. No, no, no. That's not the way to do it. Less is more, right? No! That's crazy talking, right? Everyone knows less troops is not a way to win a battle. You need more than less. Evidently, that's not how God rolls. No, no. The troops are way too many, says God. Why? Because then they'll start thinking uh, that they were all that and a bag of chips. Like, they're the ones who were able to provide this victory. Gideon has gone to ridiculous lengths to test God's presence. Now it appears that God is ready to go to ridiculous lengths to test Gideon's faith. God says, you know, if there's, if there's anyone who's not feeling it, anyone who, shall we say, a little bit apprehensive about the battle that's uh, up ahead. Anyone who'd rather be, oh, I don't know, home cleaning their baseboards or removing leaves from the gutters, well, we'll just go ahead. You, you may leave. You're dismissed, honorably discharged, vamoose. And over two-thirds of the army departs. Now, it's not surprising, right? 
They have been bullied by Midian for seven years. They've been forced to hide up in the mountains and in the caves. Of course they'll be afraid. What's surprising is that Gideon doesn't leave along with them. What's even stranger, though, God still doesn't like those odds. 10,000? Nah, that's too many. In fact, he ends up cutting it down to a fighting force of just 300. 300. That's less than 1% of the original 32,000 men who came out to fight. I don't want them to get a big head, says the Lord. And they think they're the ones that won the day. 300, that's a figure I can work with, says God. Verse 9. That same night, the Lord said to him, Get up and attack the camp, for I've given it into your hand. But if you fear to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, Pura, and, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to attack the camp. So God's ready. Let's go. We're ready. In case you're not, because he seems to know Gideon very well. If you need another sign, Gideon, take your servant and uh, sneak over under the cover of darkness and listen to what they say outside their camp. So that's exactly what Gideon and his servant does. And they overhear one soldier telling a dream to another soldier. Verse 13b. I had a dream, he said. And in it, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, and it came to the tent, and it struck it so that it fell. It turned upside down. The tent collapsed. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has given Midian and all of our army. First of all, How in the world does a rolling cake of barley running into a tent become the sword of Gideon and all of his army? I guess I don't have the latest uh, uh, dream interpretation things up to speed. But evidently, Midianite soldier number two is very uh, uh, confident in his, uh, his skills. And so Gideon leaves, having overheard that, ready to go and fight. Which leads me to a second interesting point. What? Like, God has given Gideon so many signs over and over. God spoke to him face to face, but it takes a crazy roly-poly bread dream from an enemy soldier to give him the confidence that he needs. Like, this is the best God could come up with, Gideon? Once again, it takes God's words through a stranger to give Gideon the courage he needs. So... Gideon divides his 300 troops into three groups. He gives them two different items for battle. First, a trumpet. Let's hear it for the praise team. (laughs) Evidently, these 300 Israelites could play a killer song. I spent a lot of time working on that one right there. Uh, (laughs) Second, they're given a lit torch covered by a clay jar. Um, Very strange battle, I know. Uh, But remember, the goal is God wants to make sure that that the people know God is the one who has given them victory, not their own strength. Verse 18, Gideon says, when I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you shall blow the trumpets around the whole camp and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. Okay, so they're divided into three groups, 100 soldiers in each division, 100 trumpets, 100 torches. The plan is to surround the Midianites uh, along the mountains uh, above the valley where they are camped, and then uh, blow the trumpets, smash the clay jars. I don't know why they didn't just 
take the clay jar off and hold it up. I guess it's more dramatic. Uh, and then hopefully, if all goes well, the enemy will think that they're surrounded and they'll lose all hope. Verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and they smashed the jars that were in their hands so that the three companies blew their trumpets and also broke their jars, holding in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, I emphasized it on purpose. Like, what's up with that and for Gideon part? That wasn't part of the plan that God gave him. Both times, it was for the Lord and for Gideon. I mean, wasn't the whole idea of going from 32,000 down to 300 was so that there is no and for Gideon, it's just for the Lord. What's that old saying? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Not that Gideon has absolute power here, but obviously um, he's starting to let the power go to his head. Friendly reminder, it's not about us. Right? Whenever God gives us something to do, it's not about us. Say it with me. It's not about us. Standing on the hillsides above the valley where the Midianites were encamped, Operation This Little Light of Mine gets started. And you will never guess what happens next. Right? The Midianites, evidently not expecting a midnight raid, awake from their sleep. They hear the sounds of the trumpets. They grab their swords. They stumble out into the darkness. They see the whole place surrounded by torches. They think that each torch must be a whole brigade of soldiers. And they start going crazy and running around. It says, the narrator tells us that God uh, 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 sent them into panic, disoriented them. And they end up killing each other accidentally the Israelites never have to engage in the battle at all. It was the upset of the millennium. Kind of like the Rams finally beating the 49ers last week, but sorry, that's a Southern California joke right there. So it's tempting uh, to end today here and to say, there he is, Gideon. The unlikely hero finally turned out to, be, uh, to save the day and be the man that God called him to be. But as Dr. Kandaya writes, the end of the story is more strange, complicated, and frightening than our Sunday school versions. Now, the battle ended when most of the Midianites were killed. Those who survived fled. But, but that victory wasn't enough. Gideon sends his men to track down the Midianite officers who escaped. They also were killed. Then he decides to go after the Midian kings. Not because God asked him to but seemingly because he has all this pent-up anger and resentment for the past seven years of oppression that the Midianites had inflicted upon them. We also find out in chapter 8 that uh, Gideon's brothers were killed by Midian, so maybe this is a personal revenge thing for him. As he's pursuing uh, the kings with his 300 troops, Gideon's army needs supplies and a chance to rest, but when they come to the city of Sukkoth, they do not offer any hospitality or provisions. In fact, they kind of have a sarcastic response to Gideon. So after he then catches and beheads the kings of Midian, he comes back to Sukkoth and kills everyone in the city, man, woman, and child. Gideon has changed from a scared and timid man with so much self-doubt into an arrogant, ruthless, self-serving, brutally vindictive warrior. But that's not the end of the story either. Chapter 8, verse 22. 
Then the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us out of the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now, at this point in history, Israel has not ever had a king. God has been their king. But after this rousing victory over Midian, the people are ready to lock him down to a multi-year contract and make Gideon their king. Not just Gideon, but his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. They're wanting to start a uh, monarch dynasty. Now, Gideon's response appears to be faithful, doesn't it? He says, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Which is great in theory, but then we have the very next verse. Then Gideon said to them, well, let me make a request from you. Each of you give me an earring that he has taken as booty, for the enemy had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So soldiers in the ancient Near East would fight partially in hopes of attaining a piece of the victory spoils, right? When you defeat uh, an opponent, you then get to take the opponent's stuff. I don't need much, just one earring from everyone, he says. In verse 26, we discover the total earrings given to him amounted to 17,000 shekels of gold, which would have, in today's uh, exchange, would have been uh, boiled down into 30 gold bars. Over a million dollars in spoil. What did this new millionaire Gideon do with all of that gold? Verse 27, Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his town in Ophrah, and all Israel prostituted themselves to it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Now, an ephod was a tunic that was worn by priests under their breastplate, Made of solid gold, it would have been quite the fashion statement for Gideon, but he was not a priest, so he did not have the authority to wear it, so instead he set it up on display in his hometown, probably near the exact location that the altar to Baal had been set up that his father had done, and suddenly he has brought them back full circle. That the people start coming to see, oh, remember, remember when uh, Gideon and, and, and we defeated with just 300 of us, the Midianites, it was amazing. Oh, look, look at us. This reminds us of how amazing we are. And the cycle continues again. It's an unfortunate ending to the story. Gideon, who initially accused God of abandoning Israel when, when they needed him most, now abandons God after God empowers him to overcome the enemies. So back to us. Have you ever felt like God didn't show up in time? That God was late when you needed him most? That's human nature. But maybe the real question should be turned back to us. And we ask ourselves... Have we put God first and foremost in our lives? Or have we maybe lost our focus along the way? Because it's not about us. It's not about us. May we have the strength to have a different ending to our stories. Amen.